Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What a week. Oppenheimer, Barbie, who knows what else? Who has time for anything else? Anyway, long movie. Nobody. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we're going to do Oppenheimer today. Get right to it because it was a long movie. It was. It was. Thank you, Chris Nolan. This is uh, the story of J. Robert Oppenheimer, our uh, American Prometheus, as it's based on the novel that it's called it's not a novel well sorry it's the biography You're it right. certainly is now it's 600 plus pages and i read a bunch of reviews that said you should read the the book before you see the film did you read the book no but i want to read the book now which i'm i'm in i'm intrigued to see how much you know came from truth which it sounds like a lot i'm halfway through yeah well here's the thing i, I think it's all true everything you see is accurate but they leave a lot out. And considering it's three hours, like you'd think, oh, how could he have left anything out? But there's a bunch that's not in there. So it's worth, oh, I'm sure. definitely worth reading. So we haven't done a Nolan film before. Um, I'm curious your thoughts. Look, Oppenheimer's a really controversial figure in American history because he ran the Manhattan Project, which was the project that built the atomic bomb. Afterward, he had grave doubts about the work he had done. He was clearly a genius. He then also had a lot of ties to the Communist Party. And basically, he was taken down by Congress the way they can with all those men sitting up way high on these seats. Around. Well, not not him. That's what's interesting is is in the film, he's not he's not the one taken down by the men sitting on high. They're in a small room in a back room with no attention, no press. They made it very clear that this wasn't important. Right. This didn't need to be televised. This didn't need to be announced to the American people. Yeah. According to the world by Chris Nolan, you know, anyway. So it's the story of Oppenheimer, which is a huge part of American history. Now, one of the things that I read, which I think is important to bring in right at the beginning, is that, uh, you know, Paul Schrader, you know, who's an incredible man in Hollywood, he says that um, this is the best, most important film of this century. Now, hmm. you know, when you weigh, the enormity of the film that was laid out in three hours, which, you know, you have to be a brilliant director and writer to be able to do that, which Chris Nolan, I think, is, and have it be about something that had such great import in the history of the world. 
it has all the potential to be that. What an undertaking. You know how we talked a couple of times ago about how sometimes people make remakes because they want to show that they can do it better now, that they've learned and that the film could be, you know, Little Women, good example of a of a remake that was could be made better if possible after mm-hmm. four, four times prior to that. Okay, this is one of those things where it could have been horrible or it could have been great. Just out of the gate, what's your overall take on it? Did you love it? I am conflicted. Uh, And this is why I wanted to talk about Nolan as a filmmaker before we jumped into this, because I am not always a Nolan fan. So I was very reserved going into this movie. I struggle with him as a filmmaker. I think he's brilliant. I think he weaves an unbelievable visual journey. Uh Uh But storytelling, I don't know, is his forte. It's so funny you say that because... I don't, I sort of felt, I don't really know him. Why don't I know him? And then when I looked it all up, I saw Dunkirk, but the other, a lot of the other films he's done are not in my genre. I just don't watch them. Or Batman's never saw any of them. Do you know what I mean? Three, but yes. Yeah. (laughs) Shocking. I know. I know. I know. I hear you. And then he does Dunkirk. And so for me, the thing I was looking at is Dunkirk in this. And what I see is he really doesn't try to hide his bias at all. He has a bias against war, period. And he brings it, you know, both of those war movies, Dunkirk and this, he brings that bias in. But I hadn't thought about storytelling until you just said that. Give me more. Tell me more. I think Dunkirk is the example. A lot of people came out of that movie comparing it to Saving Private Ryan, and there's no comparison. I didn't feel anything coming out of Dunkirk other than that was an incredible visual experience. Right. And this should have been, I think, personally, one of the most emotional World War II stories of all time. That was an unbelievable moment for Britain. I can tell you the name of one character in that movie. It's George. It's the only character in the movie who has a name (laughs) because he doesn't tell us emotional human stories on that level. He's not interested in that. Right. He's interested in the study. It's so funny you say that because I also had read that Killian Murphy, who uh, who plays Oppenheimer, that he's been in so many of, yes. um, of the films that have been done by Nolan. And then I looked him up and I'm and I saw that in his credits Dunkirk, and I thought I don't remember him in Dunkirk. So I yep. look it up, and it here's the description of his character: agitated soldier. Yeah, he's well, it's funny because he he is one of the most memorable in the movie in Dunkirk because he's he the one who chickens out. It fits in perfectly with what you said, but I had to laugh. I was like, well, there's a credit. This is the first time that I mean, the everybody talks about Killing's been in six of his films, but this yeah. is the first time he's had a leading role. He had a very big role in the in the Batman franchise. Um, he's yeah, he's not a leading. He's not a lead. He's he's one of the primary villains in the Batman franchise. Um, and I, by the way, Killian's amazing. He's an incredible actor. And I think this movie is great. By the way, he, he's, uh, he's also the most nominated actor for Irish film and television with six nominations from Ireland. Well, I'll be, I'll be interested to see who wins this year because uh, it, there's some stiff competition coming out with killers of the flower moon and Napoleon. Uh, but he's, he's unbelievable in this movie. And What I think didn't work for me in Dunkirk from Nolan as a filmmaker worked for me here because this is a study. It's scientific, it's heady, it's intellectual. And while absolutely, ultimately, it's incredibly emotional, 
you don't feel that from the screen. And it's put, the movie is framed, which we'll talk about this in a second in the structure, but the movie is framed as each man Strauss, who is a very big character from- He's a villain. He's the villain, don't you think? He He's the villain, but you don't really know he's the villain. And by the way, what a great role. What a great uh, Downey delivers. You know, but Downey's always been this great actor. And in the last maybe 10, 15 years, he hasn't been given the roles he should have been given. And finally they gave it to him. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. He's amazing. No, he's great. It's fascinating because both of these men are in the same situation where they have to justify their lives. One very publicly, one very quietly. Right. And it's the juxtaposition, the foil of these two men that carries your whole film, which is interesting when you're dealing with the contextualization of we're telling the story of the creation of the atomic bomb, <laughs> right? Is that is that the best way to show this story? And at the end, it feels very much like a Sorkin courtroom drama. <laughs> did you feel that way? I didn't feel, no, I don't. It at the feel, end. I did not feel that way. I never thought it had the dialogue that you have to have to be a short. A short. Oh, only at the end, only when they're tying everything together and showing us how everything's intertwined and why it's all related. I was like, oh, this feels <laughs> Sorkin-esque. You can see this and you'll have a course that you could be ta- could be taking for an entire semester once a week and get the same amount of content out of it. It's almost like going to, ha- I felt I equated to going to Hamilton. When you go to Hamilton, you don't have the luxury of as it starts, from minute starts, if you don't stay with every single second that's on, that's in front of you coming out on the on the stage, then you're, you've lost it because you can't get behind. Absolutely. And this is the same thing, which is why reading the book is so helpful because yeah, it helps you keep, you can, you know, you've got three hours and you think, oh, we're going to meander through this. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> like, it's unrelenting. No, there's no time for popcorn. There's no time for chew. There's no time for a sip. Oh, I had there's- to run to the bathroom and I had to like pick my moment. <laughs> Of when I could go. You hardly can because you just don't know, you know. Now, the other thing is when you look at the pictures, go and take a moment before you go to the film and look at the pictures of the real life characters, including Emily Blunt, who plays Oppenheimer's wife, or um, uh, Plute, 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 I always, I can never pronounce her name. Florence correctly. Pugh. Florence Pugh, who plays his one of his lovers. He was a womanizer. Anyway. It seems like every character, including Downey, which you wouldn't recognize if you didn't know it, were, you know, it was him. Oh, I don't think that's true. Well, I think you always recognize Downey. They really look like the characters they're playing mm-hmm. physically. And they it's almost like, and I saw Emily Blunt on an interview and she said, when I look, I watch this, I think, my God, we, we all look like these people. And, yeah. and she said, maybe it's like when your dog starts to look like the owner or, you know, whatever. <laughs> Is that why? Because they do. So it's really, they really took these roles on, didn't bring a lot of their own self to them, but really played them out the way they were laid out in this amazing book. Yeah. I'm curious about Strauss. Um, he's the only one that I feel like you, you can feel Downey in that role, right? He's so, he's done such a great job. It's so funny, you know, you don't see the Marvel movies, but I wonder how much of Tony Stark is really just Robert Downey Jr. And because it feels very similar, that kind of pithy dialogue, his his ability to to change a conversation on a dime, to make everything contextual very quickly. 
is something he's so wonderful at. Uh, and it's why you you're with him for so long within the film. Uh, but I'm, I am. They all had to read the book before they came onto set. They all had to do their. They had all they all had a lot of homework. It's Chris Nolan film. Uh, you come prepared. It, you know, the only thing I think that's that I took away that I thought was interesting and, I, and it's a larger conversation. There's only a couple of Jewish actors in this movie portraying a lot of Jewish men. <laughs> And Killian Murphy is definitely not Jewish. Uh, and Oppenheimer says the Jewish Wilder. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. Uh, let, let me contextualize. I am Jewish. One of the things that they, you know, Strauss is our villain, right? And and part of the reason that they didn't like each other, there's many, many, many reasons. But Strauss is a very involved Jew. And he did a lot to bring people over from Germany. And they kind of rob him of that in this movie, right? You don't see any of the good that he did. You only see what he did to Oppenheimer. But I think he also something, you know, there's a part at the beginning of the film where Strauss is trying to get him to take a, a post at Princeton. And he thinks it's he's giving him a gift. Like everybody would want this role at Princeton. Who wouldn't want this position there? And then mm-hmm. he points out that Albert Schweitzer's at the pond. Albert Einstein. I'm uh, sorry, Albert Einstein's <laughs> at the pond. And, you know, he sends out Oppenheimer to say hello, and that doesn't go very well, but whatever. And then on the way back, I see the moment when his dislike grows because he says to him, wait, you're leaving? He's expected that the guy's going to say, oh, my God, that beautiful home you're giving us. And right across the 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 yeah. the you know right across this beautiful park is where I walk to work every day and I'm on the campus of Princeton one of the greatest colleges in the world and he thinks he's going to be embraced with thank you thank you thank you genuflecting you know I appreciate it etc mm-hmm. and instead he goes I'll get back to you and you can see this moment which I think Downey plays very well Oppenheimer in my opinion threatens everything Strauss holds important you know, stature, education, you know, Oppenheimer just doesn't value the same values that Strauss does in many ways. And I think that immediately sets up this discontent between the two of them. You know, when someone challenges the very core of who you are, you tend to look for reasons not to, you know? Well, it's it's interesting because that's how it's presented to you in the film. But much later in the film, you get exactly. to the real reason yeah. why there's animosity well, I think there. Animosity and was ultimately, there before, my is it was there. Before, sure, long before that, you know. No, no, no. That's what I'm saying. Is the animosity between these two men comes down to their egos. Ultimately, that's what the movie's about, right? Is man's folly in playing God? It's beautiful. I mean, the the cinematography in this movie is unbelievable. Every time Killian Murphy is on screen, he is surrounded by particles, right? They make sure that every dust mite, every piece of- It's beautiful. Whatever that's in the air is swirling around him. It cuts to beautiful imagery of the stars. It's stunningly gorgeous. It's funny because to do that and not intrude is really great. But the other thing is we've got to, we've got to, we keep speaking about Prometheus. Okay. So Prometheus was punished by the gods for giving fire to man. He stole fire from the gods and gave it to man. Which would be the demise of man. So I think it's important just to lay that out if people don't know the story of Prometheus, because it's such a core value system of what this is all based on. But in addition to that, Mm -hmm. Downey said something in an interview I want to share. He said that working with Chris Dolan was the best experience he's ever had. And he said, because he acts Mm. like a father 
like the father you know you should have had, the guy you can look up to, but it's kind, but firm. He knows what he wants. He knows how to tell you that he wants it without getting in your way. He also gives you, you know, he helps you have free reign. He said he never knew how much he needed that in a director until working with them. And Mm. then he says, almost lamenting, I never had it before. And you could see, you know, Downey's career has always been difficult because he was, he is, I think he's a genius actor. I mean, you know, just watch him in Chaplin and that's it, you know, but absolutely directors don't always like him. And so, and what they want to do is they want him to do what they tell him to, you know, and he, that's not what motivates him. He's not good in that kind of environment. And he was so grateful to be on this film. And when I saw this interview with all these people, I couldn't help but think how they all felt that way. And Matt Damon, Matt Damon's on a hiatus. He's not making films. And when he when he agreed to do that for his wife, who said, you're not around enough, you need to stop making films for a while. When he agreed to do that, he said, there's only one exception. If Chris Nolan ever calls me to do something, then I'm allowed to go off the hiatus to do it. And she said, yeah. okay. And thank God he did. I know. He is, he's wonderful yeah, he in this movie. The, um, uh, is he a lieutenant or a sergeant or a uh, general, general Leslie Groves. And he is the one who taps Oppenheimer to run the project. Who And Oppenheimer, who up until five minutes before was not approved to be in the project because of his, you know, communist leaning ties. Uh, but he, Matt Damon brings a beautiful breath of comedy into it. And it has very little to do with any of the writing or any of the scenes as as they are on paper, it's entirely his chemistry yeah, so with Killian Murphy. That because what I think was so important about their juxtaposition to each other is a series of contrasts. You know, we've got Matt Damon, yeah. who is totally by the book and does the right thing and behaves the way he's supposed to behave. And then we've got Oppenheimer, who's a genius, but he's crazy and all he's all over the place and he can't be hemmed in. And the and the contrast yeah. between the two of them is so critical to being able to sit there for that long in this movie. You know, I think it's really, yeah. really well done. I couldn't agree more. The differences between the two humans are just amazing. It is beautifully done. It's interesting to me because I I I wonder, I walked away thinking, you know, is is the courtroom the way to contextualize this? Do you need that, right? In in a story that's telling us about the creation of the most effective invention in the history of man up until this point and maybe ever, right? Do you need to tell us why we're telling this story? And I think it's paid off for the most part, but did I need it? You've got an entire generation who remembers that moment. I mean, there many of them are gone. Sure. But the context of what was happening in America at that time feeds every single thing that was happening there. Oh, absolutely. I'm talking about, you know, and it's interesting to me because there's a moment where when Oppenheimer is approached about building the bomb, he's talking about how far ahead Germany is, right? He's worked with all these men. He's studied there, right? We don't, do we really have a hope of catching up? And he says that the one thing that's going to hamper Germany is their anti-Semitism. Because he heard firsthand theoretical studies, right, was Jewish science. 
well, he has he he opens this class and one person shows up. Right. Theoretically, nobody even was in thinking about that. They didn't understand what it was, let alone wanting to learn from it. You know. But Einstein was told from Hitler that it's Jewish science, right? So their anti-Semitism is is going to be what gets in the way of them achieving this. And ultimately, in my purview, the anti-Semitism in America is what ends up bringing down Oppenheimer and Strauss. Right. The Red Scare was very much fueled by an undercurrent of anti-Semitism, there was a great correlation between Jews and communism. Well, by the way, it was always there. It just reared, there are certain times in history. Anti-Semitism is always there, but it rears, by the way, it's rearing its But Nolan doesn't touch it. He doesn't touch that in the film. He brings it up in the race, but he doesn't touch it when it comes to the fall of these two men. And I find that really wait, interesting. Wait, 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 wait. Do you find it interesting or do you find it a flaw in the film? I find it a flaw personally, but I, I will say, you know, it. I think the pacing is great until the bomb goes off because that's what we're building to. And then you're wondering why, what's the 45 minutes after this? Um, and it, you know, he does a great job of pulling it together and making it still interesting after that. But you're you're building towards this moment so beautifully, so hectically, right? In a in a world that's filled with classrooms of blackboards, right? <laughs> and you're so yeah. invested. But the the fall at the end, both of their falls at the end is done so well, so beautifully. And he ties it together very well with the with the conversation with Einstein. And I'm not going to give it away, but I, as they were having the conversation, I was saying their lines in my head because I knew what they were going to say. And he does a beautiful job of presenting it to the audience without saying it was right or it was wrong. I, I do wonder, how did you feel about the the lack of seeing any of the effects of the bomb. A number of reviewers have talked about it. I didn't read reviews till after I saw it and after I put my own together. Me either. But a lot of them are talking about how they don't show it. I feel like it would have been, a, and I hate to use the pun, but it would have been a diversionary explosion. Interesting. Have you, so have you been to Japan, to Hiroshima or Nagasaki? No, I have not. No, I've been to Hiroshima. She just came back, which is why it's at the foremost of her mind. <laughs> well, no, the, the reason it's at the foremost of my mind is because I I wonder the people who haven't witnessed those things, who haven't seen the, the fallout, who haven't seen if it's going to hit the same way. Right. Because when the bomb went off for me and when they're cheering, that's the moment I cried yeah. in the movie. Yeah, but but you have that. You don't have to see. Everybody knows what happened. You don't have to see it. Make that. I don't know if everybody knows anymore. You need to make that moment bigger. But the other thing is the real question, because then you'd have to get into the real question. The first bomb was understandable. That war was not going to end. It was clear. Every single piece of information they were getting from Japan said, "We're not giving up ever." Okay. They had to drop right. that bond. The real question, or they felt they did, and I and it was it was an understandable decision. The first one, exactly. Okay, the real question for the atomic bomb was, did you really have to drop the second one? But the second one wasn't for Japan. The second okay. one was for Russia. Whatever, whatever reasoning, exact. Well, that's what history tells us. But but the whole point is, 
There's so many questions. You'd have to make it another three hour movie just on the dropping of the bomb. Oh, absolutely. And I, I'm what not about saying the two guys who dropped it and went crazy afterward and ended up in mental institution. I mean, look, th- there are so many repercussions for that explosion. But I think in this film, it was, you know, we also have the bomb is really, you know, we it, it opens up with the Prometheus quote. And it also, you know, we're seeing the explosions of what would happen if that bomb was uncontained and blew up the world, like the beginning of the film is in his mind, these atomic explosions going off all over the world, or that's the way I read it, how it would be the end of earth. Okay. I think that I I just feel like it would have been a diversionary explosion. And I just want a little credit for such a clever line diversionary explosion. Oh, well done. Well done. There's, there is a moment in the film where he's, you see Oppenheimer witnessing the photos. And that's the moment where I think we as an audience needed also to be confronted with Wilder, you just said that when they started cheering, when the bomb was dropped, that's when you wept. Okay. I think that says it all. I don't know that you need to see the actual. I just don't know if other people, uh, that's my question is, was that unique to me? Is that, uh, because- I got to tell you, there was a guy in the theater next to me decked out in the American flag. I mean, head to toe, American flag. He's got the eagle. He's in stars and striped shorts. I was like, dude, what's going on? I didn't talk to him. Uh, But (laughs) I did. I was like, is that what he thinks this movie is? Because obviously, I mean, <laughs> Nolan's British, right? He's he's not he's not waving yay America in yeah, this no, movie. But Amer- America dropped that bomb. It's an it's America's bomb. It's not anybody else's. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It's such a good way to it, we're, as we wrap up now. As we wrap up now, it's such a good way to sort of end with that enormous question of what hasn't yeah. been answered and will there ever be an answer. I don't know that there will ever be an answer. Does the world understand the enormity of what this particular bomb, which is sitting in silos in Nebraska and God knows where in Russia, does anybody really understand the enormity of what this, this is all about really, you know? So, And I think it's been a long time since I've been to a movie that I walked out of the theater with so much to think about and so much to be excited about and so much to be terrified by. And and I just want to end with this. Um, In 1989, I went by myself one Saturday afternoon. I had a three-year-old child at home. And my now ex-husband, H2, husband number two, was, was in Europe. It was a Saturday. And I went to see... Fat Man and Little Boy, which is the story. It was the first time. And that was, we're talking 89. Okay. Years later, it's still now to this moment. In fact, when the poor kid realizes he's been radiated and then he's going to die a tragic, horrible death in the next three hours. There, there are moments in that film, again, without us seeing the bomb exploding, where you realize the enormity of what was taking place. It's a great film. You can get it on Prime. I looked it up. You can get it on Prime for $2.99. If you think it's too much money, I'll I'll Venmo you the cash. Just, just 
Just send me an email. Look, watch that movie before you watch this one, because that one's first grade and this one is graduate school, but it's both are worth whatever they're bringing to the table. So you would recommend this, right? I mean, it's a must see. Absolutely. I think everybody needs to see this movie. I think especially the younger generations need to see this movie. I don't know if it's going to resonate. Killian's stunning. I mean, the whole movie is close-ups of his face. The Academy Awards might even be interesting next year. You know that? I, yeah, I mean, that's what I was saying. I think Killers of the Flower Moon is going to give it well, a run for its gold, money. I'm assuming. Out. I mean, there's a lot of really great stuff coming out. It's really nice to have a reason to go to the theater. I, I, I got to say, I, I am so happy to have a reason to be there. The theater was full. The lobby was covered in pink. Both, both this and Barbie are sold out in New York City at every single theater for the next three weeks. That's great. I'm so hey. glad. Welcome, welcome back. back, Hollywood, except nobody's working. But welcome back, box office. Have a great week, everyone. Great show. Go see it. Enjoy the movies. <laughs>